Welcome to the Teaching and Learning Professor, where you will find interviews of college faculty, staff, administrators, students, and alumni every week. Topics cover all aspects of formal and informal learning in higher education. The goal of this podcast is to help faculty understand the best ways to teach and for students to understand the best ways to learn. Your host is a teaching professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Bowling Green State University. He has been faculty and the director of the BGSU Marine Lab since 1999. Now on to the show with your host, Dr. Matthew L. Parton. So today's guest is Dr. Ronald L. Parton. He's an emeritus professor of education at Bowling Green State University. He retired in 1999. And prior to that, he served as a coordinator of guidance and counseling and the coordinator of graduate programs. And I guess I would like to introduce Dr. Parton. Welcome to my office. Oh, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Looking forward to it. So I guess I wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about your academic background, if you could talk about that. Well, the amazing thing is probably that I went to college at all, because I came from a family uh, that had no one who'd ever graduated from high school, let alone go to college. And when I grew up, I was born in Lima and grew up there and went to a school, junior high school. And... I didn't really have any ambitions of any particular thing other than I started stopping by these print shops and I got very interested in printing. And so they had a a program they just started at Lima Senior High School that would make you into a printer. And I thought, that's my dream. And it worked until uh, the end of my freshman year when my parents decided to move to Putnam County to a small community called Kaleida. And that changed very quickly because I went from being uh, a little tiny uh, pea in the whole uh, ocean to one great big, uh, really interesting person in a small school where there were only 32 in my graduating class. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, they had no printing program whatsoever. Uh, and so I just went through the regular classes, as most of the other people did, and uh, I decided to go to college. Uh, not that I had any real ambition or a plan or even an idea. Uh, the fact is, I really had never given much consideration to a academic career. Uh, the only people I had ever encountered in my life at that point that had graduate or had ever gone to college were teachers and doctors. And I knew doctor was way up beyond me. There was nothing in my realm that I could possibly get some of that kind of achievement. So I signed up for this teacher thing. Let me see what I can do with that. Uh, so I entered the College of Education at Bowling Green in the 1964. And it was a very different place from what it is now. Uh, yeah, I bet. So, so you, this is why you chose teaching, is that you just thought that that's the, uh, that sounded more interesting than becoming a doctor. I mean, I really didn't have any other options. I didn't, hadn't thought of whatever else might exist out there at that time. Uh, and so I didn't really reach real high. I just said, let me see what I can do with this teacher thing. I'd always love reading history, particularly bio, uh, biographies. And, and I worked my way through the little library we had at the high school reading every biography I could. And so they, I showed up on campus and my advisor says, well, what would you like to major in, young man? I said, well, put me down for that teacher thing. Let me see if I can handle that. So, so why BGSU? Well, actually, the truth is uh, there were two options. One was Defiance College, which I could stay home and drive, or I, it was Bowling Green. 
And uh, Bowling Green offered me a scholarship of $100, which at the time was a big deal because the total tuition and uh, fees, all and including housing, I think, came to about $1,100. And the, as a bonus, they had a program where teachers could get half of their tuition paid for if they taught for five years. And I, it was clear I had to put my way through college. My parents couldn't afford it. And so I signed up for that. And I ended up teaching those five years and getting half of my tuitions taken care of. And, and you worked a little bit too through college as well. You, oh, yeah, I did. I worked summers at Libby's in Lipsick, Ohio at that time, uh, averaging 92 hours a week, seven days a week. Uh, I was easy to get track, keep track of my paycheck because I got paid a dollar sixty an hour. <laughs> oh, jeez! <laughs> yeah, and so that was pretty well. No social life during those summers, uh, but it did help me appreciate the value of my education. Yeah, I knew yeah, how much but... time and work it took for me to pay for each hour of that class. All right, so this is so that is why you chose BGSU. Uh, is what? What else can you tell us about BGSU and during the 1960s? Well, it was a very different kind of place. Then, for one, it was very crowded. The baby boomers had all hit college that year. I was the first among the the baby boomers, and I showed up on campus. I stayed in what then was called Rogers Hall, which doesn't exist anymore. Had room not much bigger than your little office here. Maybe it was about 12 by 12. And there were four of us in two sets of bunk beds that lived in that for the. Uh, for the whole year, and so it was quite a crowded place. All the classes were full, jam-packed full, often in large lecture halls, and they were just cramming the bodies through. So it was an interesting experience for me. It was very different than anything I'd ever, and I loved it. I loved being in a learning environment. Oh, sure. right, right. So what prompted you to continue graduate studies? Or maybe you can talk a little bit about your academic background. How about that? So sure. uh, through college and, and your early career. Yeah, I graduated in, in uh, uh, 1968. And to, a week later, I married uh, Jan Davis, who became your mother, by coincidence. Uh, who also attended BGSU. She did. That's where we met. Uh, my sophomore year, it was her freshman year, we met and dated all through college. Uh, we would correspond during the summers. One of her favorite stories is that once during my job at Libby's, uh, I didn't have much time uh, outside of that. And so I decided to write her a letter and I went to the bathroom and wrote it on toilet paper. And it's six <laughs> feet long and she still has it. So that's one of our yeah, uh, special uh, Quite the letters. romantic, uh, I see. Oh, it was. Spare no expense. Yeah. Uh, but I... Did graduate. I ended up uh, applying for some jobs and didn't hear anything. And finally, uh, I got called to come to teach high school at Ottawa Hills. And the main thing it was that I had a degree in social studies, but I also took every psychology course I could take as an undergraduate because I just loved the subject. It just spoke to me. And I read everything I could. And that was the year they decided to first initiate psychology in the high school. Uh, and so I was one of the first people t in the state to be certified to teach psychology and sociology. And I just thoroughly loved it. Uh, it just was a very fun topic because it related to the everyday needs of the students. Uh, I have to admit, I started out as a pretty pathetic teacher because I taught like I had been taught, which was mostly standing heads in front of the classroom, lecturing away. 
uh, which we now know isn't the best way necessarily to get things across and to motivate other people. But at that time, that was all I had to go on. And uh, it took some time. I had some good mentors there, a couple of excellent teachers and administrators who helped me out along the way. And I think I learned on the job to become a fairly good teacher, along with the graduate courses I were taking at that time, which also helped. Uh, but I, in fact, later years when I would run into somebody that I had my first year of teacher teaching, my initial impulse was to drop to my knees and apologize <laughs> and saying, it's too bad you didn't come along better. I really got the grip of it. So it was a very rewarding experience. But I was going to graduate school part-time as Jan was finishing up her undergraduate degree yet. And so I enrolled in Bowling Green in the guidance and counseling program. And then I graduated from that in 1970. And I found out that as a teacher at that time, if you took graduate courses, they'd pay you more money. And when I was making about $5,500 a year, that seemed like a pretty attractive thing. Yeah, I remember seeing your uh, your first contract. <laughs> I think what they That's right. Give you yeah. a, for an entire year, they gave you, a, what, a few thousand dollars? Yeah, it was, it was fifty or $5,400 was my first uh, teaching contract. Yeah. And so I began coaching uh, also in sports, cross-country and track, and freshman basketball. And so that helped out a little bit. Uh, but it was a very busy time because I was also taking graduate courses toward my doctorate in educational psychology at night. So, And it was during that time that you and your brother were born. And so it was a pretty stressful time, certainly, for your mother. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and there's a whole series of stories we could go into there, but we'll skip those today. Yeah, we'll, we'll edit those out. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So so you were in graduate school at the University of Toledo. Right, in the educational psychology program. And, and it, was, it was partly because it would certainly increase uh, the pay, but I was, was intrigued with the topic. It was, you know, educational psychology, how we learn. And so I just went through the... I didn't even actually start out with the intention of getting a doctorate. I just sort of worked my way through the graduate catalog. And at some point, they said, well, if, if you'll write a dissertation, you can have a PhD. And so the, the school was very nice and let me have a semester off as a sabbatical to go over and finish up my residency requirements. And so I graduated then in 1975 with my PhD. And... Uh, actually, it was a really tough decision as to whether even I wanted to go to college because I was loving teaching high school mm -hmm. at that point. Had great students and a very supportive staff. Uh, so it was a risk to start out. And I went to the national uh, meat market, they call it, one of the national conventions, and, right. and interviewed for jobs. And nothing really much came out of it. And uh, just by coincidence, I had been going through the bulletin board there, and there was a job advertised at Bowling Green. And it was to teach in the program I had graduated from, the guidance and counseling program. Well, I'd been mostly looking at, at ed psych programs, and, and so I hadn't really even considered that. But I just left a note and my resume, and about a month later, they called and said, you want to come down and interview for this job? Well, I took it. It was a cut and pay uh, I took a uh, cut in pay, plus I gave up a tenure job to come to Bowling Green for a one-year soft money job, it was, and <laughs> yeah. it was all off campus. It was part of their extension program, so I would pack up my car, I'd drive out to a high school 60 miles away, teach, and all the people I was teaching were mostly teachers who had been in classrooms all day, and they're working on their graduate degrees, 
And so they come, you know, six, six, seven o'clock at night. Right, excited to be there, I'm sure. And so I learned to dance. That's how I really learned to teach because you can't stand as a talking head and just lecture away or you're going to lose them fast because they were all like three-hour classes once a week. And I was doing that three to four nights a week. Uh, And so I did that for several years and then finally did get a tenured track position on campus and, and it worked out. So 23 years later, I retired. (laughs) Wow. So, uh, so how long, I guess, so 23 years you were at BGSU as faculty. Yeah. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It really was a very rewarding. I used to end my classes very often toward the last few years with, I really feel blessed to be able to do something that I enjoy so much and get paid for it. But don't think me a fool. I still cash the checks. <laughs> so, so that's so. What what exactly brought you back to BGSU? You took a pay cut. Uh, you left a, a secured position that you really liked. It was just a quirk, I guess. Really, that that was the opening that happened at that time, and it was a risk. I mean, it really was a risk to start over from scratch. Uh, but I hadn't, didn't regret it a second. I mean, I, you know, Bowling Green was really good to me and our family and between uh, you and your brother and our grandkids. I mean, we've got a lot of degrees. I mean, and Michelle, my cousin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a, uh, we added them up once. There's a good number of degrees of people who stuck around here. So uh, tell me about your independent studies. <laughs> Yeah, but I think one of the most valuable things that I've learned in my life is how to learn. And that doesn't necessarily mean always signing up for classes, but there's many ways you can learn yourself, and it's even more so today. Uh, my first independent study paid off very well, and it was my freshman year of college, and I was pretty shy. I mean, I'm bad nature and introvert who learned to act like an extrovert on the job. But my basic inclination at that time was uh, certainly a reserved, introverted personality. And so I would uh, go to the Rathskeller. And that is a place on campus that I think now the police station may be there. And it's down in the basement. And it's where all the young people would go, mostly the freshmen and sophomores, uh, because they weren't enough to go to the bars yet. Uh, And so we would go down there and dance. Well, I say we, most of the people would dance. And I sat there and observed them out there, and the people who were having the most fun were the ones out on the floor dancing. And I sat and I studied, and I said, I think I can learn to do this. But how do you learn to dance? I didn't have a big brother or any of my parents, anyone that would had teach me, and I wasn't sort of going to ask somebody. Oh, YouTube. So the YouTube today would be the exact <laughs> answer. But at that time, what I did was I sat and watched who were the good dancers? And then I went back to my, my dormitory, and I had a re- little tiny 45 RPM record player, and I only had one record. I went out and bought it specifically for this because I liked it at the time. It was called Money Money. And I put that on, and I would practice in front of the mirror dancing the moves I'd watched the night before. I never do this when there's roommates around. Yeah, make is, sure this is your little, little dorm room it. with uh, three other guys uh, trying to oh, study uh, that been calculus. Ugly. Like, oh, come Ooh. on. <laughs> yeah, that would have taken a lot of ribbing. So. Not money, money again. No, man. <laughs> so I did. I went, and I, after about a month of that, I felt confident enough to go up and ask a girl to dance. And 
nobody hit me or run away from me or did anything. And it was it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more I would dance, the more people I had to dance with. And, and so that went on. And about six months later, I saw this really cute little blonde sitting over there on the corner. And I went over and asked her to dance. And that was Jan, your mother. And so we've been dancing together ever since. We're still very active dancers. We square dance every week. Yeah, you guys. So you guys, you guys are card holding members of uh, your Square Dance Club. Oh yeah, we just love dancing. <laughs> Happy feet. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, one skill that I have not picked but up. That yet. was my first independent study, but I okay. began to do others along the way, particularly after I started teaching at Bowling Green, and they all evolved out of practical needs. And so what I was trying to do, I'm working with teachers, and of course I'm teaching is basically mental health in the classroom. So how can right. I help them be good at what they do? And what I began hearing from a lot of teachers at that time was how do I deal with stress and how do I help my students deal with the stresses of their lives? And so that was my first independent study. I started reading everything I could find, going to workshops. And there weren't really classes per se, but there would be workshops at professional developments and people traveled around. And then I started reading everything I could find. Of course, that was before internet, so it was a little bit uh, tougher, but there were a lot of good resources at that time. And then that, what I did that for about a year, and I learned everything I could about that topic. I mean, I really exhausted it, and I integrated that into my teaching and hopefully some into my own personal life. And I... What I kept hearing from the, the teachers in my classroom was that my stresses are time pressures. I got too much to do, too little time, and so help me with that. Well, that evolved into a whole series of programs and really what became a career in time management, and particularly time management in the classroom. So I went on later to write a lot of articles, do research, and then that gave me, you know, it would turn into one after another. Uh, the next one I spent about a year on was a problem solving, how to help students become good problem solving, decision makers, uh, deal with crisis. Uh, and so they kind of evolved one other after, after another over the years. Uh, one of my favorites, I think, was a very important one, was dealing with perfectionism. And I spent a great deal of time with that and wrote a number of articles and uh, so that became something I also applied in my own life uh, because what I found was that in some ways I had evolved as a perfectionist, and it's easy to beat up on yourself when you do that. So my model if for an advice for people is strive for excellence, not perfection. There's a huge difference. And one analogy would be, what would be a perfect round of golf for 18 holes? Uh, 18. 18, exactly. What would be an excellent round of golf? For me, <laughs> <laughs> for you, a hundred. <laughs> Good, that's realistic. All right, yeah. Or even if you wanted to, to use as a benchmark, seventy-two par. One is a realistic goal. The other one is an impossible fascination. So forget it. You're just got to beat up on yourself. And not everything in the world worth doing is worth doing even excellently. For some things in life, good enough is sufficient. And that's hard for a lot of people to understand or comprehend. Uh, but there, you know, the secret is, how important is this something really? Uh, a good example is your mother is pretty much a perfectionist. 
or at least has a high bottle level of excellence for making beds in the morning. <laughs> so I do not meet her qualifications. I don't even bother trying to make the bed <laughs> when she's not there. But in my world, if she's gone out of town, I know she's not going to be home till the next day. Off the floor is good enough. <laughs> I'm going to pay for this. <laughs> yeah, she's probably going to hear this. So. <laughs> Somewhere along the line. Yeah. But I, I, and I've, afterwards, even I began, after I retired, I began doing my own independent studies. So they weren't just necessarily academic things. Uh, in fact, one of the first ones I did when I was still at BG was I signed up for a class in calligraphy. And I became very good at it. In fact, one of the, my interesting memories of that period when I'm practicing, I go home and I practice each letter and how to use the calligraphy with my special pens. And I remember I'm practicing one, and it's, it's the letter uh, E. And I've written a whole page of these things with E, E, E. And this woman comes to the house, and I, and I forget, some sales lady or something came to see mom. And she sees that on the table, and she picks it up, and she turns to you, and she says, you're doing really well with your ease. <laughs> and then you said, no, that's my dad's. <laughs> oh, it's like, whoa, out of here. Yeah. So, so you've been a lifelong learner, and you've taught yourself many, 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 many skills over the years from what, macrame. And, that's right. I did do yeah. macrame. I've, I began making these I went to my first subject. My students got me hooked on this when I went. This was back in the 70s, even. I went to a, a high school, and they had were doing macrame in their classroom. And before I left, this art teacher had sold me a great big ball of yarn. And so I went home, and the same thing. I got a book, and it taught me how to do a little tr uh, a sampler with different kinds of knots. And I still have it at home, hanging on my wall. And so my next project was this huge fern basket. It was like eight feet high, about three feet round, and I made one of those. The first one, I remembered spending for about 44 hours on it, and I gave it to your grandmother, Jan's mom, and the next one I gave to my mother, and then the third one we kept, and then the fourth one I sold, and for years it hung under the arches on Airport Highway up in Toledo. Oh, wow. Yeah, they actually sold it, and I'd gotten it down to 18 yeah, hours, but then it was like work. It was more right, fun. Right. So I moved on to the next things. And so this is a good example of how uh, extrinsic motivation can undermine intrinsic exactly, motivation. Exactly. Excellent example. Yeah. And, and then, then I got into stained glass. So I made a bunch of stained glass windows when we built our dream house. And, and so there's still a few of those scattered around the universe. Yeah, see, I think there's still one in the window at your old church. That's right. Yes, there is. Yeah, that was, that was very rewarding. So stained glass and, and just a host of other skills that you've taught yourself along the way. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering, what, what is your teaching philosophy for yourself? I mean, so you were teaching in an era when people just didn't do a lot of active learning. They stood up and they would do the traditional lecture. And this was, uh, in, 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 in you sort of figured out on your own that this isn't the best way to do it. And uh, so I, I guess what I'm asking is, is what today, I guess, what would you say is the, the best way to teach? I think as much as possible is making it practical so that it's relating to their daily lives, that they're uh, ex experimenting, uh, going home, taking some risks, and it doesn't have to be perfect. No, and that the, I think the one thing I learned is that the talking head in front of the classroom is probably the most least efficient 
uh, way of learning. Uh, I did actually get asked later to put some of these ideas into a book, and this is what I— Oh, right, yeah, so you have several— publications and here's one it's here called they. the classroom teacher's survival guide and it's everything i wish i had known the first day i walked into the classroom but had to learn the hard way uh and so this was how i put that into action to try to help other people become more effective with their teaching uh and i i hope it's made a difference over the years yeah and, and I've, I've i've read it and um it's many others like it as well uh some aimed more at higher ed um, but yeah, this is even uh, just having these types of resources available is making a, made a big difference for me. And then now today, of course, YouTube, I can just, you know, yeah. search for thousands of examples of ways to do things. And, um, but I couldn't even imagine start, I couldn't even imagine writing my dissertation on a typewriter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. You know, that's that's what I did. And then you having to figure out all of this stuff on your own, you know, maybe you had a few people in your small universe that you could interact with and learn from. And, but, uh, it just didn't have the, the, the wide networks that we see today where, so now you can put this out there and somebody else across the world can read your book and say, oh yeah, this this sounds like a good idea. And the ideas may not seem so original now because I started working on this 20 years ago, but what I've, what I, I'm a big fan of podcasts. I, I listen to them every day. There are just so many out there. And I'm really a fan of the internet that used wisely. It's a tremendous resource. Uh, and I'm continually listening to audiobooks. Uh, we drove up from North Carolina and we listened to one all the way here and we'll listen to one all the way home. Uh, it's a great way to keep your mind moving. And uh, uh, so we're, we're really blessed that there's. There is an education there. Our grandkids are all learning online. I mean, many of them mm-hmm. are taking courses, getting credit for it. Uh, it's just a fantastic. Uh, and I also do Duolingo, the Spanish now. I think today was my uh, 895th day consecutively of not missing it. So I can read it fairly well, but I can't speak it at all. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> took so, I took a lot of Spanish in high yeah. school and college, and and yeah. I can read it. I, that, you know, maybe it's just the way we were taught, but I, I was just taught to read it and speaking the language. I was not. Yeah, I, I, t- I have a lot of respect for people who are bilingual or come here from another country and have to learn English. For one, English is a really tough language. Right. Uh, there's so many exceptions, to it. and right, yeah. and and I couldn't imagine just actually thinking in another language. So. You know, I'll try to speak Spanish, and what I have to do is, tr- you know, I'll, I'll come up with a sentence in my head in English, and then translate it into the Spanish equivalent. Yeah. But I, I certainly can't think in Spanish, you know, and, and I couldn't imagine um, having to do that. You it, know, it's it, humbling. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, the trouble with Spanish is there's no gaps right, between the right. words, and I can read it, and I can see where they are, but if I listen to it, it's just like one continual. It's <laughs> like. <laughs> So, how did you find time to publish? With, I mean, you're in the middle of a... Uh, I, well, for better or worse, my classes were all night classes. And so, I ended up with a habit of just getting up in the morning. And I've always been kind of an early riser, so I would used to be up by seven. Uh, and so, and you know, everybody else was gone, so I'd just sit home and I'd write in the morning. And sometimes it'd only be two hours or so, but if you do that for enough days, it adds up. And so that was mostly it. Okay. Yeah. So 
Yeah, and I know you've always been an early riser, and I, I'm not an early riser. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that quite well. <laughs> so, uh, so much of your work is focused on perfectionism. Um, I guess uh, any other insights that you want to give us on that? Uh, don't be too hard on yourself. Yeah, there are very few things that it's worth striving to be a perfectionist for. I mean, on something, if you're if you're a, a surgeon and I'm going in, I want you to do the best you very possibly can on those things that are going to make a difference. Uh, but for most things in life, you know, excellence is a pretty good role to shoot for, and don't get misled into too many things that you have to be excellent on. You have to, I think sometimes I've beat up on myself because I didn't do some things as well as I would or would like to, uh, but even square dancing now, I mess up with it, and I go, eh, that's okay. It's not the end. I don't have to make a living at it. That's right, you, right. You know? That's cool. And um, I guess uh, any advice for my incoming freshmen who are future marine biologists who are trying to figure out the best way for them to soak in all the knowledge that BGSU has to offer? Yeah, take advantage of it. It really is a great time of your life uh, to not only learn to deal with other kind of people that you might not have otherwise encountered, uh, but also to explore different options. I couldn't have predicted the course of where my life was going to be. So don't try to make up your decisions too early as to how you're going to spend the rest of your life. Uh, experiment the great variety that college has to offer. Uh, learn to deal with different kinds of people that maybe you normally would have associated with. And don't be afraid to take some risks. Uh, and uh, just enjoy it. It's a very, very good time of your life to be here. Uh, this is a great university. It's a fun place to, to come back and visit. And I'm just thrilled that our tradition continues along with the other people. And I had one other thing as an afterthought. I still use my teaching school skills because I do the house tours at the Carl Sandburg oh, home right. <laughs> in yeah. North Carolina, Hendersonville, North Carolina, where we live. And if you're ever in an area around uh, Rashville, stop in and see us on a Saturday morning. I'd be glad to do a tour for you. Uh, that was my la most recent independent study, I suppose. I spent the last 10 years learning everything I can about the house, and which uh, Carl Sandberg lived there in that uh, area. So that's been most rewarding. All right. Well, thank you very much for coming out here and driving all the way up from North Carolina to do this interview. Well, I happen and, to be in the neighborhood oh, right, for some yeah, reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on to bring, uh, bring grandkids presents. You got it. it. Oh, right. yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Well, appreciate it very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Teaching and Learning Professor with Dr. Matthew L. Parton. If you like our show and want to know more, check out his webpage at blogs.bgsu.edu slash teaching and learning professor. And please leave a review on iTunes, TuneIn, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you retrieve your podcasts.